Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. I am absolutely delighted to get to introduce you this week to one of my favorite people in the whole world. There is no one, and I mean no one, quite like Danielle Forrester. When I first really got to know her, I was 25, she was 22, and we were so different. For example, she wore five coats of mascara and heels every day. She had many opinions about many things. That hasn't actually changed. But back then, some of them I found absolutely appalling because they were so clear-eyed, and I was still trying to be a grand romantic about the world. It turns out that many of her notions were dead on, a fact I still resent a little. I'm still a romantic about the world, but I've adopted a little of her clear-eyedness, perhaps. Over the last 15 years, she has become one of my dearest friends. She is one of the smartest, sharpest people I know, and by far the most competent. If she were ambitious, I'm certain she would be the CEO of some kind of multi-billion dollar corporate empire. But she's content to be a digital content manager for a health system, and live a kind of hermit life on her urban backyard farm in Texas, making paintings and soap, and growing humongous cucumbers and figs and hydroponic lettuce with her husband, her 130-pound dog, her parrot, her lizard, her cat, her thousands of gentle wasps, her assorted quail, her many food plants, and, perhaps most importantly, her 12 ducks. We talk about how delightful her farm is, and also about what it's like to raise animals for meat and slaughter them yourself the ethics of being an omnivore. And of course, we talk a lot about the ducks and how 12 ducks wandering into almost any situation will automatically make it better. Fair warning, for the first third of the conversation, Danielle is sitting outside in her backyard farm, which means there is some ambient noise in the background, some barks, some passing cars, blaring music, and of course, some quacks. And also, some of the themes of this episode could be rough on gentle ears, so this may not be the best one for the littles. It doesn't get too bad, but Danielle is a farmer, and she doesn't shy away from issues of life and death. But at heart, it is always beautiful and true. Enjoy. You know, I I have learned to speak duck. Actually, that's not true. I've learned, I, I can't speak it. I can understand it. But I've spoken duck for years. We both do. Oh, well, that's how you learn any language. Uh, yeah. Understanding is much easier than speaking. Oh, gosh, yeah. And and ducks have a clear language with with delineated uh, uh, delineated words 
that yeah, I'm going to say words. It sounds, but what are what are words but sounds? Sounds that have meaning. Uh, that and that's that's it. If you define a word as a sound that has meaning, then ducks have an enormous vocabulary of words. Okay, the you, one there's one that that's talking now or was. Yes. yes. What is that, that duck saying? That sound is I think I might find some food. I think I might find some food. I might find some food. There's there's several different sounds. There's a, there's a hundred different sounds for food. There's I want some food. There's I have some food and I like it. There's <laughs> you have some food and I don't like it. And there's I think I might find some food. And that's what we just heard. That's, I think I might find some food. I might find some food. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is there, you have some food and I'm about to take it? <laughs> yeah, that's, it's the same thing as you have some food and I don't like it. Okay, so that's a kind of a general, got it. Because it's assumed that you have some food and I don't like it. Ducks don't just feel they do. Right. And so an indication that you have some food and I don't like it already comes with action. <laughs> <laughs> with I'm going to take it. Yeah, it, it actually comes with an attempt to take it while making the you have some food and the I don't like it. I kind of want you to do videos of all the, or a soundtrack of all the duck noises, different <laughs> duck noises, and then an explanation. This is what this means. This is what this means. You know, it's funny. It's hard. Just like trying to do that with English would be hard. You'd be like, uh, so here's a set of words and it means I want some ice cream. And then we just listen to a little kid screaming, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream for four minutes. It would be hard to know where to even start. Um, what you're hearing right now is I am interested in swimming and I would like you to be interested in swimming too. And that's, that's Janice. I'm interested. She doesn't like to do anything alone. So as she's, uh, here, hang on. I'm going to show you, even though I know your viewers won't be able to see it, but you will be able to. Um, so she has climbed to the top of Duck Hill. Oh, yes, and, I see. And she's dunking her head, but she doesn't like to do anything by herself. So she's saying to Matthew and uh, Janice, I am interested in swimming and I would like for you to be interested in swimming. They don't seem interested in swimming. No, they're not. It's, it's preening time. Right. And preening time is the most boring time ever. I don't know if you can see these guys. Can you see the rest of them? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I, can see, I can see four of them. Yeah. So that's... Uh, Bork is still in duck nap time. And in fact, give me a second. I'm going to turn the misters on real quick because they're a little hot. It is warm out here. I'm going to let you just have a minute of listening to ducks. This is Danielle coming back through her gate. <laughs> all right. They were all sitting clustered under the misters. And they're, they're sitting clustered under the misters and going, I'm so hot. And Please so turn like, the misters on. I turned them on for them. Oh, they're really cute. They're just, they're wonderful. I, so, yeah. I look at them and I'm remembering I, I watched part of Jurassic Park the other night. 
<laughs> they remind me of that too. They are. They're they are little dinosaurs. Yeah. Clearly. They're, we fight the toad we fight them for the toads at night. Uh, because they want you know, they want to eat everything, but they're not going to eat a toad. All they're gonna do is murder it. Uh, <laughs> they don't eat very good, but they move around in a way that gets them all excited and I find myself fighting Trish going, No, you're not even gonna eat that. You're just gonna whip it around and then kill it and then go do something else and that's not worth a life. Get out of here. And oh they get upset. You have your farm has such a respect for life, which I I really treasure that in in what you do. Can I ask you I want to ask you about the quail because I think it, maybe yeah. maybe you don't want to talk about this. No, I'm I'm fine talking about it. What do you want to know? Well, I think my I think my listeners would be interested in this because very few of us. So y- you raised quail. Uh-huh. You raised them for their eggs and for meat. Yeah, that was that was the beginning of that. And and you don't you do that anymore? No. <laughs> they're they're not meat anymore, but. I think very few of my listeners, at least, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this because maybe I have some hunters in there, but even hunters very rarely take, take the animal and, and mm-hmm. kill it with their hands so that they, have, yeah. they, may, they may butcher it afterwards. I don't know if this is beautiful or true. It's certainly true. And maybe, maybe with our, our meat culture in mm-hmm. this country and how divorced we are, from the suffering of the animals and the slaughtering of the animals, maybe there is something beautiful and true about being willing to take ownership and responsibility of that death. What do you think? I, that was a lot of the idea behind it because, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, I really need to have meat as part of my meals. And at the same time, I'm so interested in what can I produce for myself that it fits within my life and doesn't take me out into the world or bring beings from out in the world to me. What can I, what can I have here at home? That's a lot of what, you know, the gardening. I swear I started gardening just so I didn't have to go to the grocery store anymore. I remember the first hydroponic lettuce mm-hmm. that you grew in your in your studio in Chicago, and and we still grow a lot of that. Um, I would say nine tenths of the. I I don't think there's a. We don't we don't import a lot of greens here. Mm-hmm. Because we don't need to. We've got a huge hydroponic setup. We've got great lighting. We've got a really excellent source of seeds. Uh, most of the greens I eat are pea shoots because they're fast and easy and very delicious. And I've got a huge rack of them right now. So, but something I love about gardening is I can produce what I eat and I do not, uh, I do not owe the world an interaction for it. Mm-hmm. Interactions are great when they're interactions that you want, but interactions that are necessity aren't as fun and they take energy. Every interaction with the world that is not an interaction that you chose, but one that you needed, costs energy. And I'm really big on conserving that energy. You just explained why I hate the grocery store. Yeah. I love I ha- cooking. Hate going to the grocery store. 
Yeah, because it costs a certain amount of energy. And depending on who's in the grocery store and how long it takes and how long is the line and who do I need to interact with. And do they have butternut squash today? Uh, yeah. Or ginger it, or... If you start thinking about things as an X-step process, that everything you ever do is processed with a number of steps. If you look at the number of 12 to 20 step processes that exist in our day every day, it starts to be exhausting. I come out of the shower and years ago I came out of the shower and I said to Timur, ugh, I just took a shower and I'm so tired. <laughs> and he laughed at me because that, yeah, it's worth laughing at a person for. And he said, bathing is exhausting. And I said, bathing is exhausting. And I gave him the number of items that have to happen, all the steps to a woman taking a shower, which tend to have a lot more steps than men taking showers. We moisturize, we shave, we apply, we massage, we have to do a lot of things. And everything we do contains that number of steps. <clears throat> so anyway, so I'd gotten to a place where I was doing as much to create things in my own home as I could to make everything else optional. And I've been struggling with meat for a long time because I like meat. I have good results from eating meat. I would always like for meat food to be a part of my diet. But it started to feel very wrong, given the number of animals that are here in my plain sight. It started to feel wrong to get my meat in anonymous slabs from the grocery store that you would not know came from an animal. Mm -hmm. Every one of these anonymous slabs represented a sacrifice of an animal that it did not choose. Mm -mm. And the fact that I had no direct experience of what that meant start to finish and was continuing on my life as I was in, in frankly, blissful ignorance because I prefer not to know that, that seemed wrong. Mm -hmm. Like the very least I could do and we're all ready to do certain things at certain times. It felt like the least I could do was gain an understanding, start to finish, of what it meant to eat meat for the animal that you were eating. And so I, I got three quail, adult quail, and, you know, housed them and used them for eggs. And, and you know, they were, they were cool. And I... Uh, I didn't want to breed them because I wasn't there yet, but I bought eggs from a quail man that I met, um, hatched them out because I'd, I'd gotten some understanding of how to hatch duck eggs. Quail eggs are supposedly much easier, which it turns out they are. And I had, I think, 20 baby quail. I raised those baby quail from babies until six, eight weeks old. And the thing about quail is around six, eight weeks, uh, the boy quails start getting very murdery. They're, they're a murdery little species. Uh, and at that point, you have to either process them. And I use the word process. What I mean is slaughter. Mm -hmm. But there are words that we use to soften that a little bit. You have to eat right. them or you have to store all 10 of them separately and house them separately and 
that doesn't make sense. So you take your most aggressive males and you go ahead and eat them. And so I read a lot and I watched a lot of videos and I wasn't sure until the first day whether or not this was sort of a journey that I was capable of going on at this point. But it took on this sense of major meaning. It, it took on a sense of importance that I'm not 100% sure in retrospect it really contained. But it felt important at the time and it felt like something that I was learning that I really wanted to know about. Um, and the first time I processed quail, at the time I went ahead and did not emotionally deal with that because I was busy. Mm -hmm. So I processed them, meaning I slaughtered them, then I plucked them. Did you do I it with the traditional neck ringing? Yes, although with quail, since quail are so much smaller than chickens or ducks, it's not as dramatic. You, you pull and twist. And the best way that a lot of people describe it is you pull and twist. If the head actually separates, then you probably did it right because it's instantaneous. Like um, if you pull the head right off. Completely off. Uh, I know. And that's the thing. I read that. I'm like, ah, that seems more brutal. Some people chop. And I yeah. did not do that because I said, you know what? What if on the first round I miss? Or what if on the first round, there was, a, there was a major importance of, look, this is something I want to learn, but this isn't something that I deserve to know at the expense of suffering. Right. And so I, I used pull and twist, and it requires a sort of compartmentalization that you can learn, um, that you do it and then you pluck them and then you clean them and then you cook them and then you eat them. And they're frankly delicious. They're absolutely wonderful. It was, it was everything that I had hoped that it would be. But after, I would say I raised maybe three or four generations. And after the third or fourth generation, it started really causing some pretty serious problems in my family because my husband had not signed on for this. <laughs> um, yes, this is a journey that I deserved to go on, but he lives here too. And so for him, we have a major difference in philosophy that I have no ethical problem with hunting. I don't have an issue with it. I have been known to trade duck eggs for deer meat. I'm strongly in favor of hunting, but for me, to hunt feels personally like an act of theft. Uh, that this rabbit or this deer or this whatever has never gained any benefit from me whatsoever. It was born alone, it was raised by its own kind, it lived its own life that I had nothing to do with and nothing to benefit them. And then one day I snuck up behind them and I stole their life. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel okay as much as I was there, I hatched you, um, I caused you to be born, I fed you, I cared for you, I gave you the best life that I could provide for you, and I was, you know, thoughtful and cautious and, and good to you, 
and this is the price that that comes at. That seemed okay to me. My husband that's, did not. That's okay. big. That that is a big. I, I you're, you were talking about this, and I started thinking about God. Mm. <laughs> you know, I don't. Danielle has just lit a cigarette, by the way. So just so you know, God smokes. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I'd go that far. But. So that seemed ethically okay to me in a way that hunting didn't feel right. My husband, on the other hand, found it to be a breach of trust Mm -hmm. that I have raised you from a tiny baby. I have been good to you every day of your life, except the last day when it turns out that there was that all your life that I took good care of you was in anticipation of the day that I would turn on you. And Oh man, he did not process that well. And so on maybe the third or fourth round, I had my six breeder quail left and I had planned to overwinter them and say, okay, you know, you guys are the ones that get to go through the winter. And then in the spring, we'll, we'll go ahead and breed you again. And then we'll eat you and we'll, you know, go with <laughs> And my husband had time to connect with all six of these quail, which I, was not a fan of him doing. It's like, no, no, don't name my meat birds. This isn't how it's done. Everyone who lives on a farm says you never name the animals. Yes. You name the animals that you're going to treat as family Mm -hmm. in some way, even if family lives in the barn and runs around. But any animal that you are going to sell or kill for meat, you do not name. Yes. And there are some exceptions to that. There are some very famous exceptions to that. Gordon Ramsay names his animals or names his meat animals. He names them after food items. And I, I have some opinions about that, but the, the philosophy as he's explained it is we should be aware of that and we don't get to walk away from or forget that while we're having the time with them that we have with them. Hmm. I, I know, I'm like, ah. you know, it's a, complicated, it's a complicated situation and I don't have simple right or wrong answers there. So he said, I, I don't want you to kill these guys. I don't want you to ever kill these guys. Uh, I want these guys to be pets. And I have named them. I said, okay, if that's... At that point, given the pain that it was causing him, and also slaughter does something to the soul. I, I believe that slaughter does something to the soul. I, I'm certain that it has. I was reading a little bit about um, some of the, pe- the people who work in slaughterhouses mm-hmm. and how after a few months, maybe, maybe a year, and again, yeah. I have such a terrible memory. I get the gist of the story and never the specifics. But um, yeah. after a little bit, they, they end up changed. Yes. Kind of fundamentally changed. Many of them end up deeply depressed yeah. Um, I understand, I think I, that there's a high rate of alcohol use among yeah. people who work in slaughterhouses and their families are like, I don't, you have changed. This is, yeah, I'm sure it, it, everyone cuts a little bit out of your soul, especially if you're not thinking about it. Yeah. And if you are thinking about it, I don't, I don't know that you can do it. And not in that- one of those, not in one of those like factory slaughterhouses. And that's the thing. And the factory slaughterhouse, I can't, I literally can't imagine. I, I have no concept of how that gets processed. 
I can tell you that for a teeny tiny little home farm, in my experience, and other people might have different experiences than I do, but slaughter coldens and hardens little bits of your soul. And it happens a little bit on every animal you process. Mm. And I probably did about maybe 40 in the whole time that I was doing it. And every additional decision to do that has a coldening and a hardening effect. And so... So it grows a little bit? Yes. Yeah. It's, it, it's, not like it's, you, it's not like you harden and then you soften again and then you harden. Or do you, do you harden a bit and then did you find yourself hardening a bit and then softening part way, but not all the way. And then you'd harden a little further and soften just a little less. And, or was it like really building like brick by brick? Do you think? Yeah. I think that any answer I gave to that would be pursuing a narrative in one direction or the other. Cause I honestly huh. never considered that or, or tracked it or measured that in a way. I just knew that that was definitely happening. I have a question for you. Yeah. Is there is somebody like sawing or something in the background or mowing yeah. or? Yes, um, I can move it indoors. I hate to ask you to do that, but it's, know, it's it's super sweaty out here now. Okay, move. So give me a minute and I'll move indoors. Yeah, it's probably for the best because it was getting super hot out there. <laughs> yeah, I was sorry to ask you to do that, but it was oh, the the that, trimming was too much. You, you can see I'm actively sweaty because Texas. I, I can't see, but yeah, Dallas right now is not, uh, not, not cool. No, but, oh, what I was thinking about on my way in was that, so the hardening of the soul that comes with slaughter, um, that's in a lot of ways, that's the price for eating meat. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be, a reasonable cost because I think eating meat should come at a cost. There's something about eating meat coming at no cost whatsoever that feels unkind and thoughtless. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see people, you'll see people waste meat. Wasting meat horrifies me in a way that it didn't before that. Um, yeah. Using meat as a stage prop for things. Uh, Lady Gaga's meat dress is a great example. Or people who do YouTube videos where they, you know, make sculptures of meat. That looks messed up to me in a way that it didn't before I went on that journey. Because mm. a lot of that journey was geared toward, I would like to understand, I would like to know it in a way that's real to me all the time. And now that I do, that part didn't fade off. It makes me really excited for the idea of lab-grown meat. Right? I'm, I'm very excited because, okay, clearly we do love animals. We live among 13 of them at the moment and probably more, sometimes, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on who we're taking in. It's wrong to love animals and also murder them and eat them. I know. And if you're buying meat, you are murdering them and eating them. I know. And so it seems like the very least you could do is be aware of that in a way that is real to you. 
The second we have, uh, you know, large scale production of meat grown in labs, I am there. That is, it's really exciting. I, I was a vegetarian in college and at least for a couple of years and I was a terrible vegetarian, but the reason I was, the reason I was terrible was because all I ate was bread and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, the reason I did it was because I had a secret hamster in my closet and I'd always wanted a pet of my own and I got a secret hamster and it lived in my closet. Mm. Um, and there was something about me having responsibility for, for a creature for the first time. I mean, we'd had a dog and I'd had fish and, and whatnot and some lizards that mm. that didn't go well, but yeah. uh, having a mammal, I had a mammal and it was mine and my responsibility. And suddenly it changed the way that I looked at consuming meat. Now I still eat it. Uh, I went back. There was a, I was seduced by a Thanksgiving Turkey Mm. and didn't look back, but I don't like it. I would like to be vegetarian again, but I'm healthier when I'm, when I'm eating meat, I feel better. And it's something my body craves. And I'm sure that there are some vegetarians listening like, oh, I can solve this with protein. I'm like, mm, you probably can, but I, I'm not sure. My diet is not a problem to be solved. My diet is an ongoing, continuous set of decisions that I make and will continue to make based on what's best. You really what's best for me. And Mm -hmm. there may come a time where what's best for me is a greater focus on ethical consideration. And I may spend my whole life that what's best for me is to balance that as best I can while continuing to do what I'm going to do. Yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to use any of this conversation. <laughs> oh, I'm using all of it. Are you kidding? Because this isn't, this podcast isn't just about, you know, what is beautiful and true. It's also partially about things that are true, but are hard. I would say just about all living beings continue to do what is best for them. I mean, that's... that's as they what, understand it. As they understand it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's best for them is complicated and for for some beings what's best for them is a greater focus on ethical considerations and for some of them what's best for them is gastronomical considerations and for some what's best for them is health and just about everybody does a balance of all of those my balance the balance that I struck with myself and it's an uncomfortable one is that uh, I do not buy pork except occasionally some pepperoni on some pizza. This is my, this is my exception, but I, and it's not that I will never eat it, uh, but I I will not buy it because my buying it means that I have contributed to, to the death of an animal that I have come, come strongly to believe definitely is smart and has feelings. The others yeah. I can kind of turn I can kind of turn a blind eye to that, but pigs I just can't. I can't do it. So but if somebody sorry, if somebody else has bought it, mm-hmm. 
and they're not finishing theirs, or if I go to somebody's house and they've made it, yeah. I'm not going to say no because, oh my God, I love pork so much. It's my favorite. And I can't, there's no, nothing I can do will bring that animal back. One of the considerations in our household, and it's mostly my husband's consideration because I don't have a lot of control over the menu. I, I would have more control if I decided I wanted to cook, but the cost of, no, I don't want to do that is giving up some of that control. Mm-hmm. Our household is, is, as far as meat goes, it's very beef heavy. And one of the considerations that informs that is um, meals per life. A cow mm-hmm. will provide many more meals per life than a quail. Very true. Uh, That's interesting. You're, ta- oh, you're talking almost about value. Mm-hmm. Like in an economic sense. Yeah. Shrimp. Yeah. Shrimp. Oh, goodness. That's, that's 50 lives per meal. Well, okay, 50. If they're salad shrimp, oh my God, that's 50 lives per meal. If they're larger shrimp still, that's 10 lives in a meal. That doesn't feel like something to do lightly. And so it is, it is lighter to eat an animal that will provide many meals per life and heavier to eat an animal that will provide fewer li- meals per life. Now I confess, I don't, I, I, I don't think a lot about shrimp. Yeah. And I'm sure that they're living their shrimpy lives and yeah, and don't deserve to be suddenly murdered. But it's, it's I, I think it's a mammalian thing. It gets harder when you start to consider individual bugs. That, that makes it a lot more difficult. There's a thing that we do here, which is we never take a life unless it benefits a life here so we never take a life for no reason and that doesn't matter if it's an if it's uh there are teeny tiny little they call they're called pseudoscorpions they're about the size of an ant and if you look real close they look just like a scorpion but they're ant size teeny tiny okay we would never kill one of those because there's nothing in our household that would benefit from killing one mm-hmm. um we do kill hornworms which are cool caterpillars. They will reduce your, your pepper plant to sticks in yeah. three hours. But the ducks benefit from eating them. So, okay, good, we're in the clear. Uh, we just toss them to the ducks. But we never take a life that doesn't benefit a life here. I don't remember. Some years ago, I realized that, that killing bugs, that I was killing bugs in my house, mostly just because they were ugly and scared me. I remember us talking about that. And when I had that realization, I was like, that's not a good enough reason. Spiders, house centipedes, they do not hurt me. A house centipede might make the animal, the cat sick if they ate one. It's possible. That is, that is possible. So if, one, if that happens once, I may have a catch and release policy for them. But if it's not, if it's not harming me and my only reason is that it has way too many legs and kind of, and kind of wriggles as it moves and gives me the willies and they do. Oh my God, they do. That's not a reason to take, to take their life. I talk about that at work. Um, 
what, uh, when we were all working from an office instead of, you know, now we're all working from home, but I had, I had signs on my cubicle that said bug removal service and had my phone number and I you would had like get, a little pet spider. I remember. We did have a pet spider. I loved that pet spider. That was diff- We did. Rem- I did remove him eventually only because I knew I could not guarantee his safety. In yeah. fact, I hope for his safety because the cleaning crew would almost certainly murder him and we'd had our fun and okay, little guy, come on, let's get you out of here. Uh, but I get, I would get calls a lot. Danielle, there's a big old roach. Danielle, there's a big old spider. And I'd come and I'd relocate the bug and I would use that opportunity. Yes, I will relocate the bug. And in exchange, you're going to have to hear me say they're just little guys and they're not being scary on purpose. Mm-hmm. Is there is nothing that this bug did to deliberately provoke these feelings of horror that are coded into our DNA. Yep. Um, and it's okay to feel horror about a bug. It's totally okay. I feel horror about wood roaches. Uh, down here, they call them palomino bugs. Or no, palmetto bugs. Yes, they're huge. They're very huge. Uh, and they're not roaches like they get in your house and cause they- an infestation. That's exactly. They do get in your house completely by accident. They right. don't be here. And they are awful. They are the most hideous. Everything in them makes my DNA scream, kill it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not doing that on purpose. And it's okay to be horrified, but it's not okay to take a life for horror. Right. They're not hurting you. Yeah. Uh, they're being- not hurting anything. They're just... In, in the wrong place. And I would love it if one day I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and not looking my best. I've read that poem. So I, this is a super awkward segue, but I want to, I want to ask you and talk about the, the motorcycle journey. Oh, Oh, that's an old piece of history. <laughs> no, I know. But so there, there's a lot about you that is just really <laughs> just unique. And one of the, part of it is the tiny farm, but part of it is also the, the whole motorcycle journey, especially the part from when you first decided you wanted to do it. To yeah. Where, when you started teaching and the sense of empowerment that I saw grow in you because of it. Yeah. So I, I came to motorcycling at a time in my life where I did not feel a lot of control in my life. I didn't feel in control of myself. I didn't feel in control of my circumstances. I wasn't exercising much of any control of myself, my circumstances. I was just out in the world letting whatever happened to me happen to me. You were being reactive. I, I was. Yeah. And, and a lot of my reaction was to bleed, was to bleed and mourn and grieve and, and be shocked and, and feel terribly sorry for myself. Um, because I didn't bleed. You mean bleed emotionally? No. Not literally. No, no. I just want to clarify. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, I didn't feel any power to seize any of my own circumstances. And so I mostly just wept. 
And I didn't enjoy feeling that way, but I didn't know what I could do to start to change that because I was so young. Well, and hold on a second, because what I want people to know is that yes to that. And at the same time, during you have always been one of the most vibrant and outwardly energetic and outwardly happy people I've ever known. So I just want to point that out because sometimes you can be, you can be experiencing weeping and, and emotional bleeding and, and all of these awful things while people don't even know. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure other people knew that any of this was going on. No, not many. I, I've lived the kind of life where I've been fortunate that almost every, and, and this, this sets me apart from a lot of people, almost every emotional pain I've ever felt has been directly connected to choices that I made. So I was married and that wasn't going so well. And I wasn't married to a person who encouraged my competence. I saw a kit for a bicycle that you could attach to a bicycle and it would make the bicycle go 20 miles per hour and be gas powered. Oh, a kit, a kit for an engine that you attach to a bicycle. Yeah. Okay. And that looked really fun. That didn't work out for a number of reasons, some of which were personal. I angrily went to the DMV and got a permit for a scooter because that was all that it was determined that I might sort of be competent enough to do. And then I promptly bought a scooter online and started posting ads on Craigslist that I have a scooter. It's coming in six weeks. I do not know how to ride one. Would anyone like to teach me how to ride one? And a woman who I became friends with later noticed that and said, hey, I'm a motorcycle instructor. I noticed you're getting a two-wheeled vehicle. Why don't you come and take this free motorcycle class that Illinois offers? I said, oh, yeah, I would like that very much. I went and took a free motorcycle class. And at the end of that two weeks, I had my motorcycle license. My scooter now, came. Now, you didn't. You didn't know how to drive a car at this time. I did not. Do you know uh, how to drive a car now? No, I really need to do that. <laughs> Dear listeners, this is why. This is why I love Danielle so much. She, okay, continue. Just, you don't do anything the way anybody else would. And it's, oh, it's such a treasure to my heart. Just do a lot more working around things than through things. So... At the end right, of the- so, yeah, you took the class. Took the class. I had a motorcycle license. I got my scooter. That lasted three weeks, and my father became extremely alarmed because I was taking that scooter back and forth from Chicago to Indiana. It was so, purple. It was. It was blue. It mm. was. It was blue and covered in plastic and had a big scrape on the side because I was not competent to ride one of those when I first got one. <laughs> And I was not 16. I was 27. I got competent. My mother said, if she survives the first three months, I'm sure she'll be fine. (laughs) So your dad. My father said, no, this is not okay with me. You're going 80 miles an hour on this 200cc scooter. Sell it to me. Go buy a quote unquote real bike, which I believe scooters are real bikes. But okay, my father is an Indiana Harley man. And that's how he is. Uh, and 
and ride that instead. The brakes will be better. The tires will be bigger. So I went and bought a 535cc motorcycle and rode it around. The thing about getting a motorcycle, I realized that even if every man on earth was mad at me all at once, if I did something that made every man in the world mad at me, I could still go to the grocery store just fine. I had always depended on men to drive me around. And so now I suddenly didn't need for men to not be mad at me. Men could be mad at me and that was fine because I still had the ability to visit my parents, go to the grocery store. It changed everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, It changed quite a lot. I, Two weeks after I bought my first bike, I began my first divorce, which was not a coincidence. No, I imagine not. And four months after that, I said, you know, motorcycling presented a picture of me to men that made me look less hurtable. I was not any physically or emotionally stronger. I was not tougher. I was not more badass. There's nothing about riding a motorcycle that makes you inherently harder to hurt. But you look harder to hurt. So men who would like to find someone and hurt them, whether that's a conscious decision or not, move on past you and don't come knocking. so life started to change and I was very aware of that and wanted to be a part of that for other women. I became an instructor and went and took my class, got my instructorship and started running around parking lots with sunscreen on my face and coffee in my saddlebag and hollering at people to be better at motorcycles. And that lasted five years and, and changed the course of my career and, landed me in Texas because Texas is where you go if you want to do that full time (laughs) and got me a husband. Uh, And what was funny was for, you know, I, I taught for two years while still working in an office job. And then I taught for maybe two and a half more. What completely, that was my full time job. And two and a half years in a parking lot where you are the entire day you have total control over all the functionality and the schedule and the pace and, and all of the process turned me into someone who was fairly formidable. When I went back into the office world, there's, there's a lot of my office life and the benefit that I've reaped in offices now that comes directly from the woman in the parking lot with a cigarette in her mouth and sunscreen all over her face going, I don't know what I just saw there, but I should probably see something better. Yes, that's better. That's much better. Yeah. And so riding a motorcycle led me to an understanding of how to control my own circumstances that benefited me enormously in my personal and professional life. <laughs> Sorry, it's not a very Wonderful. good Wonderful. What? Did you, were you about to say it's not a very good story? Well, it meanders a little bit. <laughs> well, oh, goodness. <laughs> so anybody who knows me, <laughs> and there, I have done a couple of these episodes. So even if you don't know me, I've done a couple episodes by myself. Mm-hmm. And all I do when I tell a story 
or try and talk about something is meander all over the place. <laughs> I have come, I've actually come to believe that for most of us, the, the really big things, the things that are true or beautiful or beautiful and true, they, they're very difficult to talk about directly. So we tell stories that weave in and out and around them and through them. And, and, and that is how we talk about them and how we share them. So I don't want to hear any disclaimers or any apologies for any way that you're telling your story. I will not have it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you sent me a picture. Yes, Matthew and his girls. That has yes. nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But it's it's a way to anchor the ending. All right. So it's a picture of ducks. And why did so? Tell me why. What it is it about this picture? Why you sent it to me? What it means to you? So every duck is very different from every other duck, which is not something I knew when I started keeping ducks. And why did you start keeping ducks? Because ducks are awesome. You know, when, you know, when you're six years old and you see a flock of ducks and you go running after that flock of ducks, because you just want to be among those ducks. Every six year old who sees a flock of ducks will make a beeline for them. They're right. Any interaction that a human has with a duck will make the human's life better for having done it. Uh, (laughs) I don't think anybody, I think there are like three people on the planet who know this. That's not true. There there are many people who know this, but not a lot of people. I would not. I love ducks, but I want them, I want them to live their free lives, not in my backyard. And, and if there were ducks that just landed in your backyard, you would go out into the backyard. You would film them. You would photograph them. You would look at them you would be amazed that, look, there's some ducks. Ducks. There's, there's no, cir- and, and I, I posit that there is no circumstance in your life. There's no life event that you could have that would not become a more joyful life event if a door opened and 12 ducks came running in. Birth of the first child, 12 ducks come into the room. You're, it is now something you will, you will remember that happening forever. Your That's wedding- absolutely true. I mean, think about make way for ducklings. Yes. Your or the, the duck walk in the, the hotel in Boston. Yes. It, if I take any moment of my life and say, and then the door opened and 12 ducks came running in, any one of those events, whether they were important or joyful or mournful or, or happy, suddenly become a better event, a happier event. And so, I, sorry, I, I am now, and this is going to sound horrible. I'm now picturing my father's funeral, and and if twelve ducks had waddled in during the pastor's homily, that would have been the best thing that ever happened. Not because the pastor's homily was bad or anything, just because I was like, I was a kind of a mess, and I was actually really a mess. And twelve ducks coming in would I would have started laughing and crying, and it would have been yeah. Okay. Okay. You've sold me. <laughs> You've sold me, Danielle. Uh, yeah. I, after we get done, start thinking about all the other things that have happened in your life. Every heartbreak, every joy, every triumph, and then end it. And then a door opened and 12 ducks came waddling in. 
And you will find that all of them, every single one of them become more beautiful for it. I'm thinking about all the, the, the handful of hard breakups I went through. Uh-huh. If in the middle of that, ducks came in, the outcome would have been the same, yeah. but it would have been so much less dramatic. <laughs> that is true. They remove drama. They remove heartbreak. It, it, now, they don't remove it permanently. No, 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 no. But they soften everything. and Certainly every- anything within the normal range of human experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I didn't know that every duck is different from every other duck. I assumed that six ducks all acted and, and acted, reacted, felt more or less like a duck all at once. And I thought that when I had a flock, I would love them as a flock. And I had no idea that ducks have individual personalities that are defined enough that I consider them to be separate souls. Mm-hmm. I, if you made all of my ducks into one color and one size, and you took all of their souls and put them in a duck that is exactly the same, and you put them in the backyard and said, Danielle, identify the ducks. I could tell you who's who in three minutes, mm-hmm. if that. Uh, I could tell you most of who's who in seven seconds. They are so different. Um, there are tendencies. Boy ducks, sometimes, and there are enough exceptions to make this not a universally true statement. Boy ducks are jerks. <laughs> They're awful. They're problematic. They're aggressive. They're, they just make the girls miserable during the spring. Because there's no such thing as consent with a duck. Except the ducks that I sent you. Um, That's Matthew. Oh, the picture. In the picture. You did not send me actual ducks. No, no, I know. I would never send you any of my ducks. They're mine. Get your own. (laughs) Uh, But the picture of the ducks I sent you is Matthew and his two wives, Bertie and Janice. Matthew, Bertie, and Janice were hatched together. They have lived together their entire lives. And when I tried to mix Matthew and his wives with my big flock, it went on for months and it did not settle down and it did not become, a, a, it did not become peaceful. Matthew loves those two girls more than I've ever seen anyone love anyone, except Bertie and Janice love Matthew more than I have ever seen anyone love anyone. There is this, there is perfect love and acceptance and gentleness and kindness in this little trio of ducks that I've never seen with ducks. And regardless of the fact, that his girls are an enormous amount of trouble for him. They holler at the drakes on the other side of the fence. They yell at him when he can't mate because he just mated the other one. They take food away from him. He'll be eating a treat and one of them will come up and say, I would like this treat. I would like this treat. Matthew says, okay, you can have it. Thanks. They throw it on the ground and walk away. They take him for granted. Uh, Regardless, he loves them terribly and wonderfully and never has a moment of doubt in how much he loves them. And they follow him everywhere and they are never very far from him. When I pick him up to look at his feet, because that's something you do with ducks, you pick them up and look at his feet. They run all over my feet while I'm looking at his feet. 
they're down at my feet going, put him down. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. And I'm like, I have never hurt him. I would never hurt him. You've seen this. I have given him back to you hundreds of times. And they say, oh, please, Matthew, be brave. <laughs> and when I do put him down, they preen him and groom him and say, oh, Matthew, you were so brave. No. So there's this little trio. All they have are each other because they're separated from the main flock because the main flock won't behave. And they have this perfect, peaceful little duck life. They are so boring. There is never <laughs> any drama in the So domesticated. They are happy every minute of every day. And they take excellent care of each other. And they, the two girls are loving to each other. They are both loving to Matthew. Matthew loves both of them. It is the happiest relationship between animals or people or anything that I've ever viewed in my entire life. <laughs> so that's my picture of beautiful and true. I want to thank Danielle for spending her Friday afternoon with me and giving me the tour of her tiny farm. One day, I will see it in person, I promise. If you would like to see a little of it, you can go to her website, www.formeatandeggs.com. Now, it's been a while since she's updated. She's a little busy and, frankly, doesn't seem to feel the need to entertain y'all. But you can see a little of her life, and her writing is really delightful. As always, thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Search for The Beautiful and True Project. And if you don't mind, give us a five-star rating. That really helps us. And if you really like what you hear, be sure to tell a friend about us. I hope that listening inspires you to focus on the beautiful and true in your own life. We'll talk again next Sunday. Have a great week.